Hey everyone, welcome to the Influencer Economy Podcast. This week's episode is supported by Truemaker, a new menswear brand that combines ruggedly refined original designs with a modern approach to made-to-measure clothing. You'll never have to go to the mall again or worry about finding your size online. Sign up for an appointment at truemaker.com and one of their expert outfitters will come to you when and where you want to for a simple, casual 30-minute fitting. Then they'll measure you for your shirts and blazers that are built to fit you, only you. It's also easy to reorder more perfectly fitting gear at truemaker.com. That's T-R-U-M-A-K-E-R.com. And make sure you mention as a friend of the show, Influencer, when you sign up to get a free gift with your first order. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Influencer Economy. This is Ryan Williams. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode, number 24, with Caleb Bacon. The Influencer Economy is a podcast in which I speak with makers, builders, and creators, people who have launched revolutionary and big ideas online. Caleb Bacon is a network TV writer and host of the popular podcast Man School. He's a jack-of-all-trades in the modern media world and currently writes for the TBS sitcom Sullivan & Son. The Man School podcast is a show in which he interviews men about their exciting or difficult experiences in life. I wanted to have Caleb on the show to talk about his successful Man School podcast, his television career writing for Sullivan and Son and other shows, as well as succeeding in Hollywood and how people can make it in Los Angeles, his own trials and tribulations and learnings, and also how luck, hard work, and all the elements of success play in the creative process. I want to thank everyone for tuning in again, and Caleb is an awesome guest. Happy to have him on. And if you're new to the podcast, um, please subscribe on iTunes. Feel free to leave us a five-star review. That helps a lot. And if you want to check us out online, it's InfluencerEconomy.com. So anyway, um, episode number 24 is a really good one. Welcome to the show, Caleb Bacon. I just, I've heard different shows, so I would love to talk to you um, about like the kind of the ROI of podcasting, why you do it. And uh, if and then your your show Sullivan and show Sullivan and Son you have a podcast around that. Yep. And I think that's fascinating as far as like the TV industry and media in general. Like it seems to be that blogs were really big, and then social networking, and now everyone wants a their own podcast. And have we started? Is this official? We're not, we'll start it right now. Oh, that sounds because that sounded like a good intro. Well, let's do, we're using it. Let's, that was the intro. Ryan Williams, so nice to talk to you. It's a pleasure to have you on the show, Caleb. Uh, welcome very heartily to the show. I uh, would love to just get your perspective on podcasting and how you uh, see the business and what's the ROI. And uh, I know you've been doing it for a few years now. Uh, first of all, I'm not a fan. Yeah. Well, there are a bunch of hacks, generally. Actually, there are a lot of hacks, but that's, that's part of what is good about podcasting is anybody can do it. So you don't have to be good. You don't have to be in it for money. You can just want to screw around. And that's kind of how I started. It was, it was like, hey, this is a creative outlet where I get to screw around. And uh, who was your first guest from your older podcast? Oh, that's a good question. Um, my first podcast, I, I actually it started in college radio when I was uh, in college. That'd be weird if I was out of college. You were a seven-year senior in college. No, no, no. I graduated in uh, four years in the summer. Where'd you go? University of Albany in Albany, New York. Uh, not to brag, because I'm not. But uh, then I, I started my first podcast with uh, a friend of mine who we were both blogging for the same website in 2009. And it was mostly a show that we just did together. Then we had the occasional guest call in 
that I would record on speakerphone from my BlackBerry. And yeah, BlackBerry, remember those? Yeah, those guys. That's a great piece of technology. I'm sure it'll Actually, never die. Yeah, I'm with my in-laws right now, and one of them works in the sales world, and he just got rid of his BlackBerry a week ago. Congratulations. I was like, dude, yeah, way to stay with the times, Kevin. <laughs> Is that why you're out of town to have his BlackBerry going away party? We had, it's a, we had an intervention. We said, oh, look, yeah, that's, that's We good. sat him down, and most people do it for you know, drinking too much or you know, Tiger Woods. You know, it was a sex addict, supposedly. They had to sit him down. But for us, it was get rid of rim. Yeah, all those things have major life consequences. <laughs> I judge you by the phone you use and the email that you have. If you have AOL or Hotmail, like I definitely do not take you seriously in any, any part of your life. Well, if you do have a Hotmail account and it's spelled M-A-L-E, I will take you seriously. <laughs> right. Like, whoa, that guy must be a Hotmail. Yeah, I mean that. Well, that's obvious. I mean, you, hence the name of your podcast, uh, Man School. Yeah. yeah. So I, I don't have an answer for you. I don't know who the first guest was, but we had a few. We had a few different people call in uh, from the world of sports, reality television, pornography, that sort of thing. Yeah, well, that's that's an important industry for the internet. Porn. It is. Uh, it is. Yeah. A lot, a lot of page views. Um, so then, when you started Man School. You talk about the creative outlet that it provided. Like, what, what was the itch that you were trying to scratch, so to speak? Well, so I'm a, I'm a writer on the TBS sitcom Sullivan and Son. So it's a fun, funny, old-school sitcom set in a bar. And uh, why I bring that up is because I have got a career that has me in a writer's room for many, 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 many hours. And so as I was doing my old podcast, and it was going on three, four years, I was kind of losing the interest in it. And I think that's because my career started doing doing better, that I didn't have as much of a creative void to fill. And so what I realized was a podcast that was just for comedy's sake, just for screwing around, was something that I just didn't have as much space for in my life. But I really did love podcasting. And I, ha- and I said, okay, I'm going to quit this show and come up with an idea for a new show. And I wanted to find an idea that was going to be something I was going to be excited about for a couple of years and was was going to be something that uh, I don't I don't want to I don't want to say that I was trying to like do some good for the world because it's not that simple but I wanted to do something that had more meaning rather than writing as a vapid Hollywood writer for no, I'm just kidding but <laughs> Son of a gun. yeah you uh, you work in an industry though that has uh, superficiality and very traditional by trade. So if if you're a writer, though, in the room, aren't you expressing your, your creativity? Or do you feel like you did it to the point where you just had nothing in your, your free time to to get into like a fun thing for yourself? Well, I, I think I kind of outgrown the version of the podcast I was doing. And what was and, that called? The Gentleman's Club. That's right. And uh, some episodes still be found if anybody's looking for them on iTunes. But... but because I was doing so much of comedy, I wanted to do something that kind of touched on some of my other interests because, uh, you know, like most people, I've got some varied interests here. Yeah, and so you're, you're multifaceted. Yeah, I've got like three facets. And so with Man School, I came up with the idea for a show where I have like, like deep and honest conversations with a variety of men about their real life experiences, things that they've been through, whether they're just especially difficult or amazing and unique. 
And so, so with that show, it's a chance to do something entertaining, but also something that's that's interesting and deep and can be very serious, but uh, not not too dry and morose. And uh, before I forget, congratulations on getting engaged. Oh, thank you very much. That's yeah, a, that's I, awesome. I did that. Yeah. Um, have you done stand up? I did. I did stand up uh, for like six months. In I think it was the year two thousand, and then I retired. Yeah, <laughs> I totally. Yeah. That's what I did. I did it back in the early two thousands when I lived in Washington D.C. And I did it for two years. I probably went up about sixty five, seventy times. But I dropped the mic and walked away. <laughs> yeah, on on top of the game, no doubt. Yeah, exactly. Right. Much like myself. Yeah, no, the opposite. <laughs> well, but, what I realized was that was not for me. But there was very much part of me that wanted back into comedy in, in some way, and so now I see that as a writer, and, and that's what I prefer a million times over to stand up. And this podcasting, obviously, it sounds like you have had a create, creative streak most of your life, you know, if you're, especially if you're experimenting with stand up. Like, is, is podcasting, what does it do for you in the long run outside of being creative? Like, does it help build your network? Do you feel like you're meeting new people? Does it even help your, your writing career because it's expanding a certain part of you? I, I think for me, it helps everything. And I, for different podcasters, we all get into it for different reasons. And sometimes those reasons will evolve as we go along. And I've been able to do better networking for my television career. And I'm a, I'm a big proponent of anyone who works in, in well, a lot of fields these days. Whatever you can do to make yourself more interesting to the outside world will ultimately help you with the career of your choice. And so I've never had, say, a podcast guest offer me a job. But because of podcasting, I now host the official podcast for my television show, and which, which is kind of amazing because... I, as like a lower level writer, uh, I get to, I, you know, I get to be the voice of the show and I'm not even one of the actors or head writers or producers. Yeah. And how, how is that? Do you guys perform, you guys uh, record it at the bar, which is the, st- the stage or do you go somewhere else? Uh, we use a little room on our soundstage at Warner Brothers. And, uh, and can you actually... I'd love to hear just your description of the show and then also the podcast, how that relates to it. Because I, I felt like with Breaking Bad, the last second half of their season, they had a writer's podcast that came out. And I thought that was a really cool and awesome way to get your true fans to understand more about your show. Yeah, it's the opposite of that because Breaking Bad is a deep serialized show that you can debate different things. You have everybody has a different opinion on, Oh, is Walt really a good guy? Is he really a bad guy? Is he both? Like there's a lot of stuff like that you can talk about and go really deep on a show like that. We are a sitcom set in a bar. We shoot in front of an audience. Uh, our, our, our shows from week to week are, are not serialized. You can just pick up any episode and hop right in. And there's there's less to discuss like that. So the podcast is is less an extension of the discussion of plot points and more of a way to get to know the the cast and the writers and the producers better. Because I, I moved to L.A. to actually be in TV and film, and I we used to live in D.C. and Baltimore, and I worked on shows like The Wire and 
Oh, great. Um, but I, I was like the location scout or, you know, the PA. Did and you so, play Stringer Bell? Was that you? Actually, I met the original Bubbles. Oh, that's cool. He, uh, he would come to the set and he looked like hell. I bet, yeah. And, and he was like, hey, I want to go talk to David. And I'm like, uh, okay. And he's like, no, no, I really I, I want to talk to David. And I'm like, what's your name? And he's like, Curtis. You know, I couldn't remember his name, but something like that. So I'm like, all right, I'll check. And I like radio in, hey, Curtis is here to see David Simon. And they're like, yeah, send him right in. Huh. And all these characters in Baltimore that were based on real people, like it was fascinating because they would like hang out around the set and then their friends would become extras. Well, what was it like for you to break into Hollywood and writing on a TV show? Because I, I felt like a big frustration with the hierarchy. Uh, it's hard. It, it's hard. Somebody, I heard somebody make the comparison once that if you want to write for television, it's kind of like making the Olympics in your sport, except there's some people who are in my particular Olympics who are terrible. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's been hard and it's a grind, but I, I, I've definitely had some lucky breaks, but at the same time, you know, I wish they were luckier. Because when I see people who are like 25 writing on shows and I'm, 33 writing on a show and I'm like why did why did they get to do that thing and not me but but uh but it's all it's all good now well what's it like having a podcast where you have total control and you're the owner of it and then versus working on a show where you're in more of a system that's traditional and it's you're not the producer per se well if I was the if I was like the head writer on my show Sullivan and Son you would give yourself a raise Oh, absolutely. But uh, the, when you're when you're the head writer on a television show, you are the typically the creator of the show. You're the boss of the show. It, it's like you're the CEO of a company because you've got a couple hundred people working for you. But then you've got your board of directors you have to deal with, which is the studio and the network. And so when you're when you're the more your writing career goes up, the more responsibility you have, and the more intense pressure you're under. Even if it's a small show, it's still a multi-million dollar thing. And so for me as a writer, right now, I get to I get to do what I want and not have that pressure. Sure, I don't make uh, you know $100,000 a week, but what, which would be nice, by the way. But with a podcast, I get to have total creative control, and I don't have to have all that pressure. And, and that is a really nice thing. I think that's a good space to to do good work. For podcasting, like it seems like everyone now is in this media space, especially like I work in the marketing world and brands and you know people want to advertise on podcasts. And for you, you started back at 09. Like what did the landscape look like back then? Because you were just doing it to do it. I, I, well, let me say this. I was doing it to do it, but I also felt like I could make it into something – that, that did earn me money where I could go professional. And I think that's because I was already working in television. Um, and, and I was working on some like pretty big shows at that time, even though, even, even though I was like an underling in the writing world. And so feeling like I was a talented, creative person and I had had some success with college radio, I definitely felt like podcasting would eventually go somewhere for me. I didn't really know what that meant or what that was going to look like. But I, but I knew that I had to get good at it. And so for me, I looked at it as 
this is a fun creative outlet, but I'm also getting reps in the gym. Yes, and totally. Strengthening those muscles will take me somewhere. And I don't think, I don't think people need to have that attitude, but being in Los Angeles, having, already having access to some people who had high, higher profiles, uh, I, I felt like I was on a good, good path, and it, it's worked out just like that. Totally. Yeah, I agree about the reps, just getting getting in, in a routine because you definitely get better at just talking to people and putting yourself out there. And I, and I brought up Freddie as well because he, he said something really poignant where he said that he, if he could build audience first before he launched a film, then he knew he would be in a good place. And he started on YouTube back before there was even monetization. And he just and no one was building a brand on that platform. And for like TV shows, it seems it's almost like they're building these audiences that you've got to reward your top your top people with perks and insights and and so does your does your show does it have like a following? I mean, you don't have to like tell numbers, but I'm just curious as to like how how do you promote it and the, where do the super fans get it? Are you are you actually mentioning it on TV as well as through social media? Are you talking about Manscaped or for, Sullivan? For, I'm sorry, Sullivan show. Uh, the Sullivan and Son podcast was way more popular than I would have imagined. I mean, we had, I think, one episode get like 38,000 downloads. That's awesome. Yeah, and a lot of them got like 10, 20,000 downloads, and, which was amazing to me because a lot of the people who are on that show can be found all across the internet in interviews and other podcasts and archived radio appearances, so there was no scarcity to it. But people just happen to respond really well. And then for how do you get exposure for Man School? Oh, and by the way, I would love if there was a little graphic on PBS say Yeah, what's hey, what you see on like hey. Yeah. I know. Sorry. Well, they're usually just promoting other shows and not not sending you away from the television. But if they felt like sending people away from the television, it'd be so cool to see graphics say, Hey, good iTunes, check out the podcast, blah blah blah. Well you think at the very least they could put it at the end. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it, it, it's tricky. Um, I think, I mean, they they do a little bit with it with their social media, so I'll I'll take that. Because the, the show is, I think, like one hundred twenty five thousand Facebook likes. Uh huh. This is not too shabby. Yeah, so if you can get ten percent of that as a base. Sure. Yeah, sounds good to me. And then and then with Man School, it it um, I mean, there's a million answers of how you get listeners. And I think a lot of it has to do with just the, the time you put in. For example, the more episodes you have, the more content people are going to find based on Google searches. Mm -hmm. And so I, I try and have the website be pretty thorough with show notes. So when it comes to SEO, somebody might type in something that sends them to, to my website. Uh, the guests do a lot of cross-promotion. Uh, I... For example, with this conversation we're having right now, maybe somebody will want to go check out Man School. So I, I, I guess on a lot of other podcasts, um, I've I've written some content for Huffington Post and GoodMenProject.com, which is branded Man School content based on podcast interviews. Uh, I try to engage with people on social media, launching an email newsletter next month. And oh, nice! All that stuff. That's cool, and then. I noticed you've had a few Adam Carolla folks from Bald Brian to 
Is it Adam Carolla? It's Adam Carolla to uh, the asshole. Um, oh yeah, uh, Mike the Optimist. <laughs> yeah. How did you get lined up with those guys? I, I kind of became uh, friends with some people in his camp a bunch of years ago, and so, and I've been a fan of Adam Carolla, Loveline, Doctor Drew for a long time. So it kind of kind of happened organically out of those relationships. So what I'm deducing from this is just a it's a and who who are some of your more memorable guests? Um, a, a good friend of mine is the the great great novelist James Elroy, and he did my podcast. And he is a 66 year old guy who doesn't have a computer, doesn't have a cell phone. He writes these huge novels by hand. And I've known him for a couple of years, and I. If I had said to him at the beginning of our relationship, hey, come do my podcast, he probably would have said, what's a podcast? And then he would have said, tell me how this internet thing works. <laughs> right. And so I, I definitely waited and just didn't, didn't spring that on him. And so it just kind of got to a point where he seemed excited about it and it's like, hey, I'll do your show if you want. Right. It's interesting because some of the guests who are not as high profile are some of my favorites, but then the opportunity to have James Elroy do his first ever podcast appearance on my show was pretty special. That's awesome. On top of the fact that it was such a, a great, wild, weird, bizarre episode because his his I mean his life story involves homelessness, being a multimillionaire, being a globally successful author. Uh, his mother was was shot and killed when he was 10 years old. Uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on there. So that, that was really special. The, I've done a couple episodes of Paul Bryan from the Corolla show, which, which I really like. And he's recovered from brain cancer, and he's doing really well. But the fact that he's able to talk about that topic with, with some levity, and it's fun, it's it's nice to be able to to go deep and just not have it be just sad. Yeah, that was a really fa like I like that talk a lot actually. I list that's one of those talks that you you listen to and you're driving and then it ends. You know, you have 15 minutes to listen that you're like, okay, I got to pick that one up again. So I love that one. Um, well, he, look, yeah, he's great. He's great, and he, his book's on the New York Times bestseller list. Oh, that's so awesome. Should be happier for him. And what about Sugar Ray Leonard? How did that go? Oh, man. Oh, that was so cool. My dad finally loved me. I got to meet Sugar Ray Leonard. <laughs> right. It's making sense. We know why you moved to L.A. Well, no. he. My, my parents are actually pretty fantastic. Uh, though I will say comedy writers kind of uh, are, not kind of, but actually are way more dysfunctional than most people. I would imagine. Comedians were the same way. They were batshit crazy. Yeah, yeah. So, now, I, I myself have plenty of issues, which I think qualifies me for it, but um, <laughs> but I'm on the other side of a lot of those issues right now, so uh, if I was still drinking, it would be a different story. Oh, you're you're sober? I am, yes. For how long? Six and a half years. Uh, congratulations. And were you a TV writer when you went dry? I was okay. a writer's assistant to a, to a big television writer, and I couldn't quite hit the next level. And that was because everything in my life was not going up, it was going down. 
And there are some people out there who are wonderfully prolific talents who can be wasted off their ass and win Emmys year after year. But like, I am not that guy. Interesting. Yeah, I actually, I, I drink and I, I took a, a sabbatical. I took like four months where I didn't drink. Um, and I, I felt like going to parties was very weird because you had a water in your hand or a soda. Like, what was the biggest adjustment you had when you went out socially? Oh, geez. There's so many. I, uh, the biggest adjustment, not so much at the beginning, but over the course of my sobriety, has been choosing what I want to do socially. Because I used to think I was a certain type of person. And then I realized, like, wow, I don't like going to as many concerts because people are bumping into me the whole time. It's crowded. It's hot. Like, I, I used to go to a lot of shows. And stuff like that, I'm like... I'm just not not as into it because you have a couple couple cocktails into you. Who cares if people are bumping into you? Right, your threshold for annoyance is lower. Yeah, so I, I pick my spots more, and I think that's also why I'm having a successful writing career, successful podcast career, because I I have time because I'm not going out every night to to put into it, and I I, I do stuff that's that's positive with that time. And now you're getting married. That's right. Yeah. So, did you, how'd you celebrate that night? If you didn't, uh, if you didn't drink champagne. Oh, black tar heroin. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's <laughs> right. And was this partially because you lived in the environment of L.A. and entertainment? No, no. I think I think L.A. gets a bad rap for like, oh, it sucked. It sucked this guy in, this Iowa farm boy, and turned him, turned him into a crazy killer. For me. <laughs> I believe that I had the genetic potential and the signs were there before I moved to L.A. But because this is a place where if you want to party, you want to go out every single night of the week, there's stuff going on. So because of that, I feel like it allowed me more of an opportunity to bottom out faster, which was good because for me, then I got sober younger than I might have uh, somewhere else. That's awesome. Yeah, I guess I never thought about it that way because people get. I feel like LA has a lot of people that are lost, and they're like well, they're creative, but they're just struggling with their career. So they meander around the city, and then they're here ten years, and they're still in the same place. I think I think creative industries attract a lot of dysfunctional people, but then also the delusional people who want to be in those creative industries because they can't really hack it in anything else. So right. what? When I've tried to make it as a television writer, I never looked at it as, sometimes you hear people say, like, I'll just make up a number, but like, one in a hundred thousand people who want to be an actor will become a working actor. Like, that's not really the number if you look at it. If you were to look at all the people, <clears throat> whether, whether it's an actor or writer, who are seriously working on their craft, they're putting in the work, not just waiting to be discovered, so to speak. That number is a lot lower, and so I so I looked at it as I'm competing against the same people, right? Not just every hairstylist who has script, right? So there's a certain level of commitment that you reach when you your odds increase because everyone else is a. I like there's a lot of casual screenwriters here. When I or when I first moved to LA, it's like you go to coffee shops and everyone has a script they're working on. Yeah, or or there's a lot of people who want to be a writer, but they're not writing. 
or who want to be an actor, but yet they refuse to do plays. Right. Totally. And I look at it as like, you got to do the thing. You yeah. got to put the work in. So what advice do you have for people that are you know, trying to make it as a writer or just, you know, in any creative industry at this point, I feel like the barriers of entry have changed. So the systems of Hollywood writing, like when you were, you were there back when TV was TV, right? You still had, how how old do you think I am? Good, sir. I imagine, well, you said you were doing college radio at, in 2000. Yes. I'm 33. Oh, you are. Yeah. I'll be 34 later. I thought you were like 35, 36. You son of a bitch. Uh, yeah, we sound 45, but, uh, I was trying to be polite. Well, I'm old and wise. You're an old soul. Um, I, I think the old soul is probably accurate. But yeah. Now, there's a, there's a George Lucas quote that I love. I don't know how old it is, but it's not new. And it applies today more than ever. Somebody asked him, how do you get into show business? And Mr. Star Wars said, somehow. Yeah. And I, I know the, the guy who wrote one of my favorite movies, Dumb and Dumber, like he first got his break because he threw a script into the backyard of a neighbor who was an agent or something like that. And you, you can't do that these days, but everybody has a different story of how they were able to rise to wherever they got in show business. Right. And I think these days, like Freddie Wong, if he wanted to pitch a television show, and I'm sure he has, people are going to listen to him because he has this audience. And so he's created his somehow on YouTube. Totally. And that's... And, sorry, go ahead. But, but at the same time, nobody... If you just set out to go to YouTube to build an audience so you can pitch a television show, it, it may not work. Like, you have to... I believe you have to try all these different things and then once you're good at something, lean into that as much as possible, whatever people are responding to, and try and take that somewhere. But that takes a lot longer, typically, than most people are willing to put in. Totally. And, the, and those people that put in the time, you have to grow this authentically, whatever your, your, your medium is that you picked. And people that you build in your community aren't going to jump on the bandwagon just for the sake of it. Like you have to really like grind and it's a slow process. Absolutely. And there's, there's always luck involved. And uh, another word for luck is timing. And because Freddie Wong got in on YouTube early, I think he was able to get some real hardcore fans who he, he could speak to in like this really pure way. Cause there was no monetization. It was not commercial. So therefore, people looked at him a different way than they might have if he started today. Totally. And now it's more congested and crowded on YouTube. Absolutely. So it's even more difficult to stand out. And I, so I think what it comes down to is try stuff and get your reps in. Even if you think you suck, it's probably because you do. But that doesn't matter. It's, even though people can go to your website and see stuff, and it, and it's not good. You just gotta just gotta keep at it because if there's if there's a goal you're reaching towards, you gotta keep at it. Well, cool. That's awesome. I think uh, I think uh, I think this is a r really interesting listen though because you've definitely straddled the the line between a Hollywood job and we talked about that, but we also talked about your podcast, which is more of the upstart. So uh, I appreciate your time. 
Oh, you're welcome. And uh, let's let's do it again when you get back to town from your BlackBerry party. To, yeah, from the rim party. <laughs> from the, uh, the rim intervention.